This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The following podcast contains explicit language. Thursday, January 7th, 2016, from Slate, it's The Gist, I'm Mike Pesca. Here are my two favorite names in news stories that I read this week. In fact, I guess they are Names in the News. 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 My first name in the news is Constant Phoenix, specifically the WC-135 Constant Phoenix Sniffer Planes. Now, this is the plane that they're using near North Korea to determine if North Korea exploded a hydrogen bomb. No. No, says Constant Phoenix. Hold on. We have audio tape of that. (laughs) Nah, it didn't happen. Planes have personalities. Just given their names, given what they do, I believe there's a Disney franchise based on this very fact. But the A-10 Warthog, you know what he is. He's got a cigar. He's a cigar chomper. He's played by Tommy Lee Jones in our Imagine movie. You got your F-14 Tomcat, right? Yeah, I could go Mach 2. I got a 16610 LBF thrust with the afterburner. That's 2780. I got some Sidewinder missiles. I got some Sparrow missiles. I got a Vulcan six-barrel Gatling gun. Yeah, this guy's walking around the bar that the planes hang out in. And then enters the Sniffer plane. Her name is Constant Phoenix. At first, I thought she'd be a little like a few of the characters from Inside Out. She'd have sadness's gloomy disposition, disgusts, disgust, and fears post-nasal drip. What is that? Do I smell something? Is someone making toast? But then I began obsessing on the constant phoenix part, the constant phoenix part of her name. And that's what the smell is. It's the smell of ashes, the continuous smell of ashes. And she's all about detecting that which is not true. She'd be a little like Angela Lansbury, Kim Jong-il. I doubt that you really are that good in golf. And I doubt you made the lyric poetry attributed to you. I'm Constant Phoenix. You can't get one by me. My other name in the news. A name in the news. My other name in the news is the name of the Weibo, which is the uh, Chinese internet site. The name of the Weibo user who wrote about how Donald Trump acts in the debates. So it's a big thing in China to translate the debates and then Chinese users talk about them. And one guy said, I really dig old Trump whose head has a gigantic hole and who won't stop his sensational remarks, but then added, I suspect Hillary will become president. And the name of that user is I am afraid of roller coasters. That just jumped out at me. I'm going to say that something is lost in translation, but I enjoy that the user I am afraid of roller coasters has taken to Chinese media to criticize Trump. When you get down to it, aren't we all at least a little afraid of roller coasters? I mean, if we weren't afraid of roller coasters, roller coasters wouldn't exist. They sort of depend on our fear. So that's what I think might be missing in the translation. Now, If I were giving Trump advice, I'd tell him to ignore, I am afraid of roller coasters. But knowing Trump, he'd lash out at him. He said, of course you're afraid of roller coasters. Given this Obama presidency, roller coasters have become tremendously dangerous. But who am I to give Trump advice? In fact, that is the topic of today's spiel, wherein I give Trump advice. We see how he does in the polls with that advice. But first, it could be the world's most influential algorithm. Facebook is constantly tweaking it 
It determines what Facebook thinks you want to see. So I'm on my Facebook page. Let's see what the big news is in the world of Mike Pesca's Facebook page. Oh, the decluttering guru. Man, do I get a lot of stories about this decluttering guru. Don't need it. Don't like it. Talked about it on the Culture Gab Fest. But why? Why are these stories being thrust at me? The answer, as is the answer with almost everything in 2015, is an algorithm. And the algorithm is highly guarded. And Facebook is tweaking it all the time to make the experience better for the user, therefore better for Facebook. Will Aremis, who covers these kinds of things for Slate, went to the Facebook offices, figured out what was going on, and cracked the code. Or actually got as close to cracking the code as a non-Facebook employee can, and in fact, they're still trying to crack the code. Hello, Will. Hi, Mike. So what was your assignment going in? The assignment was to try to figure out what's actually happening when Facebook tweaks the algorithm. Especially if you're in media. I mean, it just sends shockwaves through the industry. Yes. Facebook tweaked its algorithm. Our likes are down 46%. Yeah. And you've got to scramble to figure out what they changed. And it never works the other way. No one ever says, my God, we're doing a great job. Not really. Facebook just tweaked the algorithm. Yeah. And, yeah. and the, reason, the reason for that, incidentally, is that people are always trying to game the algorithm. And Facebook's job is to keep them from gaming the algorithm. And so if you're the media, you're in the business of gaming the algorithm. Facebook really is in the business of keeping you from doing that. But let's back up. The algorithm is what you see in your feed, what news stories, for instance, or what stories of other people you're exposed to in your feed. How, pretty much how Facebook looks to you. That is the algorithm. Yeah, let's back up even a little further. So an algorithm just yes, means good. an algorithm just means a concrete set of instructions for solving a given problem. And it's a word that has taken on this sort of you know, eerie, mysterious affect. You know, the algorithm does this, the algorithm does that. What I really wanted to do with this story is go to Facebook's headquarters. This is, by the way, it's this giant sprawling building in Menlo Park. It's the biggest open office in the world, uh, apparently. And you were not allowed to wander through it. I, I was not. <laughs> I, w I went to the bathroom and they followed me there um, <laughs> to make sure I didn't steal their code, I guess. But the algorithm, you know, what it really is, is it's, it's a software program. Mm -hmm. It's a bunch of code that executes some instructions. And, but humans have to give it those instructions. They have to tell it what to do. And then they have to give it the input, the data that it needs to generate that output. And so the story was really about how these people go to work every day at an office in Menlo Park and figure out what those inputs should be. You know, what data of Mike Pesco's can we look at that will be relevant to figuring out what stories we should show him when he opens Facebook? And then what also, what's the output that we want? What are we trying to optimize for here? Are we trying to get Mike Pesca to click and like and share as many posts as possible when he opens Facebook? Or is there some deeper uh, goal that we're hoping for here? Do we want Mike to, to feel good when he opens Facebook? Do we want him to keep coming back to Facebook? And so it's been this struggle internally at Facebook, I learned over time, to figure out both what they should be measuring in terms of the data and input, but also what they should be optimizing for. The weird thing is when you talk about this abstractly, it does seem, I mean, you just talked about the idea of an algorithm being nefarious, but the entire process, forget what name you call it, does seem, my God, it's manipulative when you lay out the words involved. But when it happens on your Facebook feed and when it's working fairly well, which it must be because people like Facebook, you don't even think of it. If anything, you're like, oh yeah, that's good. That's a service. You know, it just kind of washes over you about, uh, as something that's working. 
there's this huge group of people out there, I, I know because they, they write to me furiously every time I write about Facebook, who wants Facebook to go back to the way it was and just show you all the posts from everybody in order of when they were posted. It actually never was that way. That's a myth. There were always too many posts from all your friends to show you all of them. So they've always filtered it in one way or another. If it were really like that, I mean, you would, your, your feed would be full of stuff like, you know, some guy you met eight years ago and have forgotten just won a game of Mafia Wars, right? That would be at the top of your feed. I remember Facebook being like that, actually. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it actually was a lot like that. It's true. But uh, over time, their goal has been to get better at that filtering process. And is that is that evil? I, you know, I think what scares people about it is just that one company has so much influence over yes. what we read. There's... Even if they're wonderful people, the power there. Look, the New York Times is powerful, but what's their algorithm? Their algorithm is 8 to 12 guys, and now in f- recent years, some men, some women, deciding what goes on the front page. Human beings decided, fallible, you don't like it, get the Daily News. Facebook's a little different. Yeah, that's right. And they try to avoid putting their own editorial stamp on the newsfeed algorithm. They don't want to. I've asked them this before. I was I was trying to press them on the fact that you see these fake news stories or these stories that are really bad science that just fool people about it. You know how to cure cancer with by eating bananas every day or whatever. And, you know, don't you have an obligation really to to optimize this algorithm for truth, you know, to to change the algorithm so that the the stories we're getting are, are accurate and true? Well, that's that's my journalist's perspective, but that's not Facebook's perspective. They say, we don't want to get, we don't want to be in that business that the New York Times editors are in. We want to be in the business of giving users what they want. And so what they're doing over time is they're trying to get more and more nuanced forms of human qualitative feedback. So move away from just measuring our likes and clicks. Bring people in. They brought, you know, a thousand people into this center in Knoxville, Tennessee, and just studied how they interacted with their newsfeed all day. They asked them questions. Well, okay, you liked this post. Why did you like it? And maybe they say, well, you know, I feel obligated to like it. It's my boss's post. And then Facebook says, ah, so this is a reason for liking a post that we didn't know about. Maybe it doesn't actually mean you want to see more of your boss's stuff. So it's that type of qualitative human feedback that Facebook is really now trying to incorporate to make the newsfeed a better experience. And you also point out that there was this tool where you could hide a post, which they thought meant, wow, I hate this so much. I want to hide it. But a lot of people were using it like, oh, read that. Cool. Hide a post. You know, there's that big data trend that everybody jumped on where everybody wanted to make data-driven decisions, right? Well, it quickly becomes clear if you build a company around data-driven decisions that the data don't capture everything you really want to capture. And so this was one example where the data were telling Facebook that people were hiding posts. And and to Facebook, that meant, well, obviously, they, they don't want to see those posts anymore. And so they were downgrading these posts. But as they delved into it, they realized... People are hiding these posts because that's just a a small subset of Facebook users use that as a way to archive them. It's not that they didn't want to see the posts. They go through their feed and everything that they read, they then hide so that their feed looks, you know, all all clean and nice and simple afterwards, I guess. It's not really a productive behavior, but it's it's a way people were using the product. And Facebook had to study their interactions at a more human level in order to understand that because the quantitative data alone would, would have lied to them. 
Well, you just convinced me of something. First, I was going to say, before you decide to friend that guy on Facebook, think of him as your editor. Do you want to read what he reads? But you know what? A lot of the people you friend or your relatives and you want to show them pictures of your kid, make sure to round it out. I have a ton of people in the office. I'm not friends. I don't know if we're friends on Facebook. Maybe we are. I'm not friends with Jordan. I'm going to become friends with him because his feed is going, he's going to be a better editor. Did Jordan call you out on that? I can see Jordan objecting to you not being friends with him. Well, he didn't ask me to be a friend either. But that's a pretty good strategy, right? Remember, Facebook is using everyone you follow as sort of uh, an editor and a tastemaker. There are two even better strategies. Mm -hmm. Some people aren't going to like either of these. One is if you want your Facebook news feed to be full of stuff that you really value, you just have to use it more. Because the main way that the news feed optimizes for you is by studying what you do on Facebook. Now, if you spend time just looking at a post in your feed before you scroll away from it, Facebook is taking note of that. It's, oh, that, that grabbed Mike's attention. Let's, let's see if we can show Mike some more stuff like that one. You know, maybe he didn't click like on this one because it wasn't, you know, just didn't lend itself to that type of interaction, but maybe he really does want to see more of that. So that's, that's the first way. The second way is that Facebook is finally doing something it had resisted for a long time, which is giving users the power to sort of manually tune their own feeds. It does now. There's a little gray down arrow at the top right of any post in your Facebook feed. You go in there, and the first thing you'll see is hide posts, see fewer posts like this. So you can explicitly tell the algorithm, I don't want to see stuff like this as much anymore. You can unfollow the person. That's a really handy tool, by the way, for people you want to stay friends with, but you don't want to see all their crap on Facebook. There are also options to uh, see more from a given user. And now, just recently, Facebook gave you the ability to see a given user's posts at the top of your feed every time. So so you like Jordan Weissman's posts the best of all. You can now tell the Facebook... Look, I don't know if I'm going to commit that far. (laughs) I just sent the friend request. So you can check out Jordan's posts, study them a little bit. And if you really like them as much as you think you might. Tell Facebook, I want to see those first every time, and then those will appear at the top of the feed. Now, the pitfall here is, what if Facebook's algorithm really knew us better than we knew ourselves all along? What if you go in and tell Facebook, I want to see Jordan's posts at the top of my feed every time I log in, but then it turns out, uh, they're not that exciting. And maybe, <laughs> Jordan, maybe you kind of dropping the ball. Maybe you kind of drift away from Facebook. Maybe you forget that that that's why Jordan's always at the top of your feet. So there's a risk here as yeah. Facebook gives you control over the algorithm that if you don't know yourself as well as the algorithm does, maybe this whole thing will backfire. So were there examples where Facebook's algorithm, where the Facebook guys themselves are embarrassed? Were there the dark days of the algorithm where they're like, this was a thing we knew we had to change? Yeah, I think we're still in those dark days. We may be, Facebook hopes we're just coming out of those dark days. Yeah, I think you're right. I think with Google, it's like, wow, the algorithm, how do they do that? And with Facebook, it's like, oh, the algorithm. I mean, it's a mess. Yeah, trying to to figure out people's people's taste. It's a messy business. It's a hard business. So there there was that first generation. There was BuzzFeed really in 2012, kind of won Facebook with those listicles about the slow lorises who disapprove of you, you know, that kind of thing. (laughs) Uh, And that was kind of, I mean, it was silly, but it was also kind of ingenious, right? And, And then in 2012, 13, Upworthy came out with this formula for for getting you to click on stories. You know, you won't believe what happened when this elementary school teacher confronted the the bully who had, you know. Question, is Upworthy dead or just dead to me? 
It has pivoted. <laughs> yeah. It is, okay, it's very still, good. That's Silicon Valley for dead. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, so, but, but then following those pioneers came this raft of just really junky, spammy stuff. Uh, Viral Nova, I describe as being like upworthy with all the morality stripped out. It's, it's like, it's like uh, I, one of their big famous posts was, you know, this looks like a beautiful field of snow. What it actually is will haunt your dreams forever. It, turn, it turns out it's all spiders. That post is now gone. Uh, but anyway, there were these content farms. You, is that the, the example where the spider took the picture of himself and we decided who owned the picture? Uh, yes, the, yes, the monkeys. Maybe it was a spider monkey. It was a monkey. <laughs> Good. But, but, but yeah, so the viral novas and then, and then worse. I mean, companies you've never heard of that figured out ways to game the algorithm and go viral with stuff that's, that's not true, stuff that's disgusting, that's hateful. That I, I would say maybe 2014 was the banner mm-hmm. year for, for just crap filling your Facebook feed. And I, I think it really is starting to get a little bit better now. Will Remus is Slate's senior technology writer and his article, Who Controls Your Facebook Feed? Answers Who Controls Your Facebook Feed. It's engineers in Menlo Park. Thank you, Will. Thanks, Mike. So for the past year, our podcast has been coaching up a listener, Frank Kennedy, on how to tell a great story. And now you're invited to hear how our coaching went. Coaching provided by 20-time Moth Story Slam champion Matthew Dix. The event is called Story Collider. It takes place on January 15th. And we all go to the Crane Theater, that's Crane with a K, in New York City's East Village. We tell stories, stories about science. That's the collider part, that's the collision. Stories and science. And if you're a Slate Plus member, we're gonna invite you to a pre-show party, a complimentary happy hour, upstairs from the Crane Theater at the KGB Bar. So, Matthew will be there, Frank will be there, I will be there. Also there are some storytellers like Ben Lilly, who's a physicist turned storyteller, and then Rachel Maddow shows in-house astrophysicist Summer Ash. So come to Crane Theater, come to the KGB Bar, it's Friday the 15th, and for tickets, for information about joining Slate Plus and the complimentary happy hour, go to slate.com live. And now the spiel, the bore room. Donald Trump has been raising questions about Ted Cruz's Canadian birth. As the three weird sisters foretold, no man of American woman born could slay the Donald. But now there's worry that the Canadian born Cruz is that slayer that has been prophesized. Oh, Trump's not worrying. He's just... I've been hearing a lot about it and you've been hearing and I guess everybody's talking about it. Oh, Trump's not worrying. He's just noting all the worry he's been hearing. Though I guess eventually all that worry got Trump a little worried. Problem is that if the Democrats bring a lawsuit, the lawsuit could take years to resolve. And how do you have a candidate where there's something, you know, over the head of the party and that individual? But Trump's not a fretter. He's a doer. And he told Wolf Blitzer what he would do if he were in Cruz's very precarious position. I'd go and seek a declaratory judgment if I was Ted. What does that mean? It means you go to court. Which court? You go to federal court to ask for what's called a declaratory judgment. You go in seeking the decision of the court without a court case. You go right in. You go before a judge. You do it quickly. It can go quickly. Declaratory judgment. It's very good. I've used it on numerous occasions. I've been pretty good with it, actually. Pretty good. In fact, terrific. Trump is definitely good at the declaratory. As for the judgment, well, 
If I were Trump's advisor, I'd tell him, you know, you can't just go to the Supreme Court and get a declaratory judgment on a constitutional issue. And this thing has been settled. There's no cloud hanging over his head. John McCain was born in the Panama Canal Zone and George Romney was born in Mexico and Barry Goldwater was born in Arizona before that was part of the United States. So we're talking about in the last 70 years, three Republican nominees who weren't born in America. This is this is not even a question. You, you look like kind of a fool. If you bring this up, that's what I would say if I was Trump's advisor. Let's see how my advice would play in the polls. Down three points. Yes, if I were Trump's advisor, telling him to avoid misstatements and not to get mired in trivialities and really not to step in a dung heap of misinformation, that would be my advice. And I think that would be terrible advice. Well, let's see. Let's see how that advice would work out. Wrong, wrong, and wrong. I realize that I, as more or less as a member of the mainstream media, I am perfectly negatively correlated with giving Trump advice. All my advice would hurt Trump. That's why Trump is so far out in front after he was discounted by everyone. And yet you still hear talking heads on TV saying, well, Trump should do this or Trump should do that. Or I don't know. It seems to be working with Trump. I mean, if I were Trump's advisor, I would take a statement like this one that he made on CNN. I mean, I don't hear massive meetings taking place where they're all coming in and they're discussing uh, guns and they're discussing what to do. And I'll point out to him, come on, Donald, you can't have a summit where there's just no disagreement. That's not really going to work. You shouldn't even say that. Let's see how that plays in the polls. Down three. Well, maybe after a while, I'd start to get it. I mean, as an advisor, I assume if he hired me, I'm only the best, I'm only the brightest, I'd have experience. So I would think of politics as a way to shape reality to the candidate's worldview. Maybe at times I would think of my job as bringing voters around to realizing reality, right? Global warming's real, a good political advisor can help a candidate phrase the reality so that voters get it. But Trump's relationship with reality is like his relationship with matrimony, largely disposable. Sometimes it suits him, sometimes a younger, leggier reality flits into view. The great thing for Trump is when he doesn't like reality, he ignores it. Or when he engages in the opposite of reality, his supporters love it. Because not only is he telling them what they want to hear, he's also telling them what they shouldn't want to hear because it's quote-unquote wrong. So an inconvenient reality can be ignored, and a convenient unreality can be embraced. That's the Muslims on the roof. Maybe if I were Trump's advisor, I would eventually get this. So maybe I'd learn to see the world in his way a little bit. Like when John Dickerson on Face the Nation asked him this. Does it concern you at all that you're being used in a, essentially a recruitment video by a terrorist they, organization? They use other people too. I mean, what am I going to do? I have to say what I have to say. Now, the old me who didn't understand Trump might try to craft his words a little better. Maybe I'd engage in dog whistles. You know, that old political thing that we thought we needed before Trump came onto the scene. But now, now I would know as Trump's advisor and seeing how his campaign works, I'd tell him to go even further. I'd say, I'd say to Trump, look, Trump, just say 
Wackos everywhere. Say wackos. Wackos everywhere use Thomas Jefferson's words. Timothy McVeigh quoted Jefferson about the tree of liberty being watered with the blood of tyrants. I tell him to get the quote slightly wrong so it doesn't sound like a nerd. Yeah, I know he went to Wharton still. You're a man of the people. And then you should say, what? Jefferson shouldn't have said that? I'm like Jefferson. I say true things that people don't like. If idiots want to twist them, I'm not going to stop talking. If I were Trump's advisor, I might tell him to say something like that. How am I doing in the polls? Up to. But you know what? It's too late. Because after my original advice, I think I would have heard the classic Trump pronouncement. You're fired. That's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, our producer, used to pilot an easy-bake surveillance craft to tell her when her Pop-Tarts were done, the C-120 Vigilant Baker. Executive producer of Slate Podcast, Steve Lichtig, has in his possession a handheld weapon that douses critics with a sideward glance, the M2 Shade Thrower. Chief content officer of Panoply, Andy Bowers, is an aficionado of the fleet of amphibious vehicles that tell you when the bath is too hot, the N138 Wrinkled Finger. The gist, with help of DARPA, we've weaponized a cannon that doesn't hurt, maim, or blind opponents, but lowers the user's self-worth and instills seeds of doubt. The M85 self-effacer. It rains heckfire from the sky. Umperu depperu duperu, and thanks for listening.